debit card is handy Whatever you'd like to buy Simply take your card of credit And go get it Use your credit card to purchase the hottest, most fashionable t-shirts on the scene today. Quality premium t-shirts from Panoramic Lifestyle Clothing at plclothing.store. Based in Scottsdale, Arizona, Panoramic Lifestyle Clothing features the most distinctive t-shirts ever imagined. That's because Panoramic is a vision that moves in all directions. So use your credit card and check out the exclusive collection at plclothing.store. That's plclothing.store. A credit card is handy, whatever you'd like to buy. Simply take your card of credit and go get it. Cleveland's Country 99.5 WGAR now presents Sunday Digest, a program featuring interesting conversation with people making a difference in Northeast Ohio and around the nation with award-winning broadcaster Ken Robinson. And now here's Ken and Sunday Digest on WGAR. Good morning to you. On today's show, we're going to talk about some of the contributions African-Americans have made to the world of country music, this being Black History Month. We'll also hear about a study that may indicate bias in traffic enforcement. Also, Christmas bills have started rolling in and people are seeking relief from a local organization. It's all coming up on this morning's edition of Sunday Digest. Stay tuned. Whenever I chance to meet some old friends on the street. You know, when you think about African Americans in country music, you usually think about Charlie Pride. But did you know that blacks have played a prominent role in country music from the start? Joining us is Keith Moher, senior music editor at Amazon.com. The online bookstore has a new section about the musical contributions of African Americans on its website. And Keith, Charlie Pride was a big star in the 1970s. In, in fact, African Americans were, were really key to the development of, of country music dating really back to the 1920s. And what we've done at Amazon.com is we've put together a, uh, a black history special, uh, and we've included not only the obvious genres that you would expect, like jazz, blues, and gospel, but we actually have a special section devoted to country and folk. Uh, and one of the uh, recordings that we're featuring in on our homepage is called From Where I Stand, which is a three-CD compilation devoted to tracing the history of African Americans in the, 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 the country music field. Uh, the first CD is actually uh, devoted to string band musicians from the 20s and 30s, like the Mississippi Sheiks. Um, it's probably not well known, but... But in fact, black musicians uh, were, 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 were vital to the, the development of country music. There is a, a fellow by the name of DeFord Bailey, who's included on the, the CD from where I stand, who was inducted into the Grand Old Opry, and I believe it was 1928, and was the first African-American to, to, uh, to be, become a, a Grand Old Opry member. member. But also, uh, the African-American musicians were, were key um, in, in terms of teaching actually white musicians how to play their instruments. Uh, Bill Monroe, the great bluegrass pioneer, learned how to play guitar and mandolin from, from a black neighbor. 
uh, Jimmy Rogers would hop trains and go from city to city and, and, and was heavily, heavily influenced by black musicians. Um, moving ahead to the, to the, the 50s and 60s, there was a, a, a lengthy tradition of, of black musicians, R&B primarily musicians, covering country songs. Uh, Ray Charles had a, an enormous hit in the early 60s with an album, actually two albums of, of country covers. Uh, Fats Domino covered country songs in the, in the 50s and 60s. Uh, Etta James, the blues and R&B artist, covered country songs. And more recently, you have artists like Aaron Neville, who, uh, who, who had a big hit with a, a George Jones song covered just a few years ago. So it, even, even though it's not perhaps widely known, black musicians have, have really been involved with, with country music from, from, from the 1920s really up to 1999. Uh, the most recent example I can think of is, is a, a young performer named Neil McCoy, who's a, a rising star in, in Nashville. Buzzer took a monkey for a ride in the air The monkey thought that everything was on the square The buzzer tried to throw the monkey off his back The monkey grabbed his neck and said, now listen, Jack Straighten up and fly right Straighten up and fly right Straighten up and fly right Cool down, Papa, don't you blow your top Ain't no use in diving now, why isn't it more widely known? We, we often don't think of blacks as being involved in the history of country music. So I guess we should note that the uh, home of uh, rhythm and blues music is Memphis, and the home of country music is Nashville. They're, they're both in the same state, just <laughs> a few miles down the road. How come there hasn't uh, been a closer collaboration between the two? Well, I think that there really has been more of a collaboration than, than, than people know. Uh, I think that uh, that uh, what you really have is uh, uh, musicians like Aaron Neville, who isn't necessarily commonly thought of as a country performer, partly because he sings pop and he sings R&B. But when Aaron Neville does a George Jones song, he's clearly working in, in a, a country tradition. And so a lot of it is really about definitions. Is, is Aaron Neville a, a country singer? Well, he's, he's a great singer. He performs country music. Does that make him a, a, a country star? Maybe m not by the classic definition of, of, uh, of, of Nashville, but in fact he's, uh, he's really working within the tradition of, of country music and is every bit as much a, a country singer when he's singing a George Jones song as anyone else. Now Charlie Pride being the, probably the best well-known uh, of the African-American country singers, I guess in uh, quotation marks, country in quotation marks. Were there any uh, African-Americans going back into the 20s and 30s and, and maybe even 40s that achieved his stature back then? Well, well sure. I, I think I mentioned uh, DeFord Bailey. He was probably the first black superstar in the, in the country field. Um, in the, the, uh, the, the 40s and, and, and 50s, you, you had country musicians who weren't necessarily stars but were, were, were really key performers. Um, in the 50s and 60s, again, you had uh, Ray Charles was probably the best example. In the early 60s, is is a performer who again isn't thought of as a, a country singer, but in fact he had two albums, of, two country albums in the early 60s that were million sellers and some of his best-selling uh, albums of all time. So, so really, there's a long tradition of of, of black musicians performing and and writing country music, um, and even today, even though it's not widely known. Um, there's actually a black rodeo circuit in outside of Texas. It's not well, widely known. 
in, in Texas, there's a, a black rodeo circuit, and there's a, a whole circuit of, of, of black cowboys who listen to country music, who play country music on the, as a sideline. And, and so it's really, blacks have contributed to country music dating back to the 20s, but, but uh, you, you still have black musicians who are, are really key to the, the country field even today. Was it difficult for uh, African Americans to participate in the country music field in, in earlier days, and it, is it still difficult now? Well, I, th- I think that, that over, the, over, the, over the years it has been difficult and, and, and more difficult at some times than, than others. I know that Charlie Pride uh, succeeded wildly, but I know that he experienced racism. I know that uh, uh, over time he definitely won over country music fans who looked beyond the color of his skin. Um, more recently, I would say in the last 10 years, you haven't seen as many uh, b- black performers in Nashville uh, and and there, there there may be an element of racism in in, in that as well, um, but you also have performers like Cleve Francis and, and Neil McCoy who who uh, who have been signed to major label deals, and and so I really see that changing too as we move into the uh, into a new century. Has there been bias from the black community against black artists who want to sing country? Sure, I think it it, it cuts both ways. A couple of years ago, for for a magazine story, I interviewed a a, a black cowboy named Larry uh, Callis in Texas, and Larry was a, a rodeo uh, rodeo rider in in the Houston area. But he also had a aspirations to become a uh, a black country star uh, and and sign a recording contract. And he hasn't, to the best of my knowledge, signed a recording contract. But it wasn't so much that that uh, labels weren't receptive. He actually found that a lot of his black neighbors were kind of dismissive of the, the notion that he would be singing uh, country music. And, and so oftentimes, even in the African-American community, there's, there's maybe a bias against blacks singing country music um, simply because it's not in, in, as widely recognized, perhaps, as it should be, just how close R&B and country music can be at times. The backbone of uh, country music is the guitar, which is an African instrument. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And again, going back to the 1920s, the, uh, the Mississippi Sheiks, who are featured in, on, on the compilation I mentioned earlier uh, from where I stand, uh, the Mississippi Sheiks uh, were a, a, a black quartet in the 20s who played fiddle uh, breakdowns and, and had guitars and fiddles. And, and really we're playing a kind of string band music that, that is more commonly associated with the British island, um, Isles, um, much more so than, than, than Africa. Well, we want to uh, thank you for uh, chatting with us today. Thanks for having me. And we've been talking to Keith Moher, who's Senior Music Editor at Amazon.com, featuring the contributions African Americans have made to country music. I'm Ken Robinson, and you're listening to Sunday Digest on WGAR. New findings indicate that blacks in our state have a much higher chance of being pulled over by traffic cops. University of Toledo law professor David Harris has studied court records in Akron and three other Ohio cities and found that African Americans are two to six times more likely to be ticketed for traffic violations. Here's what I did. I looked at tickets processed by four municipal courts around the state. Municipal court in Columbus, Dayton, Akron, and Toledo. Um, This did not include all traffic stops, only traffic tickets, because there aren't good comprehensive records. 
statewide of traffic stops. What I found comparing traffic stops was that blacks were more likely to receive tickets in these counties, in these areas, than their presence on the road would suggest. And they received tickets at a much higher percentage, depending on which, uh, which court we're talking about, a, uh, a somewhat higher percentage, and in some places a very higher, very much higher percentage. Now, did the rates of percentage vary from city to city and uh, place to place? Yes, they did. Um, the lows, if I recall correctly, were in the Franklin County Municipal Court, uh, in which uh, uh, they were roughly twice as likely and, and a little more, depending on the population figure that we use, to Montgomery County, uh, the Dayton Municipal Court, where they were much more likely, say, four times and even six times, depending on the population figure. Why do you think that is? Well, there could be a lot of explanations for it. Uh, that's why I am very careful to say that this is preliminary research. It is not definitive, and it can't tell you what the real problem might be. Um, you know, we could get explanations like, uh, in my city, for instance, uh, a police officer could say, we simply patrol certain neighborhoods more heavily because we know there's more crime there, therefore we end up stopping minorities. Um, the explanation could be an unacknowledged policy that, that is biased against African Americans. I mean, we just we don't know. What this study tells us is there's enough evidence out there that we want to look at this carefully to see if we can determine what the reason is. We don't know. But it does... It does tell us we might have a problem. It's at least worth looking at. Do you think the, the type of car may be a factor? Maybe African Americans drive more older vehicles that may need repairs? Or yes, that is certainly a possibility. Um, and, in fact, we factored into the study that African Americans own 21% fewer vehicles than whites as a, as a group. Um, but the fact that the cars are older simply means that it's perhaps a little bit easier to find some reason to stop the car. Any police officer will tell you that if they want to stop a vehicle, all they have to do is follow that vehicle for a few blocks. There is no such thing as a perfect driver. So it may be if they follow you for a few blocks, they could stop you because your old, old car has a cracked taillight lens. But if it wasn't that, it could be because your tire touched the center line, you uh, went a little too fast, you didn't quite stop for that stop sign. There's always something. If, if you follow them for long enough, you'll find it. So I would discount that as the reason. We also, we, it's also been found in some national studies that blacks and whites drive the same. In other words, blacks and whites don't violate the traffic code, don't commit vo moving violations at different rates. That can't be the explanation. Wow. Now, you mentioned uh, in uh, some areas uh, uh, blacks are six times more likely to be stopped. Uh, should this be considered a wake-up call to uh, Ohio police departments, and, and what should they do? Well, um, you know, police departments and police officers have a very difficult job. It's a job that most of us wouldn't do for twice what they make. Um, so... You know, nobody wants to be looking over their shoulders while they do their difficult and dangerous work. What we have to keep in mind is that if police departments want to function well in our society, if they in fact want things like community policing to work, 
where the bottom line is trust between the communities and the police. If they want that model to work, they have to have the trust of the people. And if a significant group of people, in fact, the ones who need police services the most based on where they live, if those people feel that they are treated like criminal suspects every time they're in their cars, that's a significant problem for police, not just for the African-Americans themselves who get stopped. I mean, it's difficult for them, but it's a problem for the police. It's a problem for our courts, too, because we're getting to the point where people don't want to believe the police once the, you know, they, if they get called as jurors. They don't want to cooperate with the police if they're witnesses because they feel they've been treated unfairly and they didn't get a fair shake. Now, that's not just a problem for blacks. That's a problem for everybody because it affects all of our institutions and their strengths. University of Toledo law professor David Harris telling us about his study that indicates African Americans in our state have a much higher chance of being pulled over by traffic cops. This is FM 99.5 WGAR. You're listening to Sunday Digest with Ken Robinson. You know, the first of those Christmas bills have started arriving in our mailboxes, and it seems more people are trying to deal with a credit crunch. Our next guest is Jay Seaton, president of the Consumer Credit Counseling Service, which provides free helps to folks caught in a money squeeze. And Jay, understand people are battling those Christmas bills. We're probably scheduling anywhere from 40 to 60 appointments a day. So this is a time when people have recognize that the, the ghost of the holiday past uh, is upon them, and they're thinking, doggone it, uh, I, I better take a hard look at this, and Consumer Credit Counseling Service is clearly an option. Uh, there are some danger uh, signs, some warning signs that we suggest. Uh, we ask people to take what we call a debt test. Ask ourselves uh, some questions like, is your savings cushion uh, non-existent or inadequate? Are you using credit cards for items you used to pay with cash? Are you nearing your limit with your credit cards? Are you unsure or confused about how much you owe? If you answer yes to a couple of those and some other ones, then you may well need consumer credit counseling service. Now, how much of an uh, increase are you seeing now as compared to your normal volume? Uh, I would say that uh, post-holiday when you get late January and February at consumer credit counseling service and also in March and April, uh, our request for appointments probably go up 15 or 20 percent, uh, focusing largely on the holiday bills, but also on all kinds of year-end expenses that maybe people didn't want to think about during the holidays. So that there's no question there's an increase. And at Consumer Credit Counseling, of course, our service and our counseling is free, so that we're a nice outlet for people. Some of the uh, explanations people give when they come in for counseling and they say, oh boy, you know, I really had the Christmas spirit, but I, I guess I got carried away. Is that what you usually hear? Uh, yes, at Consumer Credit Counseling Service, uh, the reasons, especially this time of year, uh, focus around uh, many times around holiday overspending. But what we find and what we talk about in advance of the holiday season is having your mind as a family or as an individual a budget of what you're going to spend or an approach to spending for the holiday seasons, uh, season. And what we find is people coming to us after the fact uh, most often did not have that budget, did not have a plan, had other expenses too, and so when you add holiday expenses to those other expenses, then that pushes them over and they're behind on their bills. So uh, in addition to that, if something has gone wrong with uh, maybe some overtime uh, has uh, disappeared, uh, maybe there's been a medical bill that's sizable, maybe there's been an accident of some sort, or there's been a disruption in somebody's life like a separation or divorce, when you add those to holiday bills, 
then you have more than people can handle, and that's what we're here for at Consumer Credit Counseling. Are your uh, counselors having trouble squeezing everybody in? Uh, no. What we've done at Consumer Credit Counseling Services, we offer uh, what we characterize as non-traditional people hours, and that is uh, we have appointments during the day, uh, but we also have appointments in the evening. We have appointments on Saturdays. We have nine convenient offices. We're going to open a couple more in the future. So we're, tr- we're, we're all over northeast Ohio from Lorraine out to Geauga, and uh, we try to offer convenience to people since we've been here 35 years. So you don't have to go on a waiting list. No. No. Uh, people can normally get an appointment, uh, and we also offer uh, telephone counseling for the convenience of people and counseling through the mail also. So it's in-person telephone or mail, and people can generally get an appointment within uh, three to five days. Hmm, okay. Sometimes sooner than that. Wow. Now, uh, when do you usually see the peak and uh, things start to, to level off? Is it usually at the end of uh, January or the end of February? What's interesting at Consumer Credit Counseling in the last couple of years, the peak, th- there have been continuous peaks. By that I mean, I would say from the January through the April, um, there's probably a, a little bit of a reduction in uh, requests for appointments in April as some of the uh, income tax refunds come. You see some of that in late March and, and early April. But there's been a consistency of requests for our service. I'll, I'll give you an idea. We probably counseled almost 10,000 people last year. Back in 1995, we probably counseled uh, in the 8,000 range. So it's pretty, and that's been growing every year. So, yes, there are really busy times, and then there are kind of busy times. There aren't any non-busy times. And we're glad because we're a service to people, and we're free, and we've been here, and that's what we're supposed to do. That's our mission. Now, is that because of uh, more publicity about your free services, or is it because uh, more people are being squeezed economically? At Consumer Credit Counseling Service, I think it's both. I think there's no question that, in some ways, it's interesting. We, we, we are getting the, we see the, the fallout of something that's not bad, and that is more people are receiving credit in uh, income levels that might not have gotten it 10 years ago, and that's a good thing. Um, more people, however, in all income levels are not utilizing credit wisely. You know, credit is a thing, an item, a, a card is a piece of plastic. We've got to know how to use it as people and as, it, as it families. The other thing we've done is we've gotten much more aggressive in letting people know what the message is, that we're available, that we're free, that we're local. We've got nine offices, and we've been around 35 years. So I think really it's a mix of the two. This time of year, we also see those uh, advertisements about consolidating all your bills. Companies want you to put all those bills together and uh, just deal with one a monthly payment. Uh, should people call Consumer Credit Counseling first before they uh, get involved in, in those kinds of deals? My sense of it at Consumer Credit Counseling is that uh, people ought to ask a series of questions about those opportunities. They're, those are mostly uh, uh, secured situations, equity against the house if you do own a home. Uh, they can help some people. They can be useful to some people, but ask a series of questions. One key question to ask is, do you want to secure unsecured debt, credit card debt, if you will, another phrase for credit card debt, do you want to secure that with the equity in your home? And any number of people suggest that, that that's not something they want to do. So they come to us first. We're not another loan. Uh, We're utilizing people's money and education to get them out of debt. So they come to us first and review all their options. They do it free. They do it confidentially, and then they decide what to do. And I guess just rolling all your uh, bills into one big debt may not be a a good idea if it's a a debt that you're never going to pay off and the payment is really small or the payment is really high and you can't deal with that one. Well, one of the things that we really specialize in, because we are a nonprofit free service at Consumer Credit Counseling, is the hidden element in any kind of debt repayment situation, and that is the behavior change, the education, the information that people need 
so that this doesn't happen to them again, or at least we dramatically increase the chances it won't happen again. And that's what some of those other approaches don't offer. I mean, they essentially just utilize money, which is important, but behavior needs to change. And where we see things anecdotally is that people sometimes take that approach that you've described and then later on find themselves, if their behavior doesn't change, they're in debt again, and they have this now second mortgage on their home. All right. We want to thank you, Jay Seaton, president of the Cleveland Consumer Credit Counseling Service, which provides free help for folks who are caught in a tight money squeeze. W-G-A-R. While we're talking about money, you know a lot of money is going to be spent on Valentine's Day gifts and cards. And, of course, tomorrow is Valentine's Day. Joining us on the line now from American Greetings, based right here in Cleveland, is Lori Hendrickson. Now, Lori, I understand research done by American Greetings indicates that men spend more on Valentine's gifts than women. Yes, it's very interesting. Uh, American Greetings has discovered that when it comes to Valentine's Day, men actually spend more than women on gifts, about 30% more than women, and they also tend to buy the fancier Valentine's. And um, part of the reason for that is that they feel that their wives or their significant others expect to get fancy upscale gifts. Not necessarily the case, but it's kind of what men feel women want. And what do women say about not uh, giving as much as men? Well, women are in a little bit of a different situation because the types of gifts they buy tend to be different than the gifts that men buy. Um, Men tend to buy things like flowers and candy and jewelry, Um, and some of those are obviously higher-priced items. Women, by contrast, um, tend to buy things like maybe a new CD for their husband or, um, you know, a book or something something that's not quite as expensive. And they also tend to buy Valentine's gifts for other people in the family as well. They might buy something for their children. Um, So they buy less expensive items, and they stretch their, um, their money a little further than the men do. Now, I understand men purchase only about 10% of all greeting cards sold each year? That's right. Typically, men are not uh, greeting card customers, by and large. Women, overall, purchase about 90% of all greeting cards sold during the year. But for Valentine's Day, the percentage of men buying cards increases pretty dramatically. About 17% of all Valentines are purchased by men. And actually, we've we've been seeing the percentage rising um, a few percentage points from year to year. Men typically will buy a card just for their wife or for their girlfriend. Um, Women will buy cards not only for their significant other, but also for children. They might buy them for their parents, uh, for their grandparents, and so forth. And they'll also buy the children's classroom valentines. What's the average amount of money a a man will spend on a gift for Valentine's Day? Um, I think it varies, but I believe for men it's around $100. Um, and again, it's usually limited to something for their wife or if they're single for their girlfriend. Um, women spend an average of about sixty sixty five dollars and again, that has to cover a lot more people. Do men usually tend to buy gifts and cards in the same places as women? No, they don't what we What American Greetings has found is that men tend to buy gifts um, in specialty stores and florists and places like that, and women by contrast, will shop in mass retail stores. Um, places like Target and Kmart and Walmart, because they can pick up everything they need in one location, um, whether it be you know a video game for their child or candy cards or something for their husband. They can get it all in one stop. So they are shopping in different kinds of places for Valentine's Day. 
Any idea if men and women have different motivations for buying gifts and cards? Men tend to think of Valentine's Day as an obligatory occasion. It's kind of interesting. We've done focus group research at American Greetings, and we have found that even if they don't buy cards any other time of the year, they feel that they must buy one for Valentine's Day because it's expected of them. So it's kind of an obligatory thing. Um, it's not necessarily something that men enjoy. We want to thank you for the interview. Okay, thanks Fa- a lot, Ken. We appreciate it. Sure. Okay, bye-bye. Laurie Hendrickson of American Greetings, based right here in Cleveland, telling us about how we buy Valentine's gifts and cards. That's it for today's show. Hope you have a good Valentine's Day tomorrow. We'll see you back here next week. This has been Sunday Digest with WGAR's Ken Robinson, a public affairs presentation of 99.5 WGAR. The views and opinions expressed on the show were those of the participants and not necessarily those of WGAR, its staff and management. Join us next week for another edition of Sunday Digest. Welcome to Ken's Corner. I'm Ken Robinson. Federal health officials say more than 226,000 American women, most of them childbearing age, are HIV positive. Marty Bond of the Office on Women's Health says the best defense is a good offense. Women and girls first need to know that abstinence is the surest way to avoid HIV, but if they decide to have sex, use condoms every time. Being in a monogamous sexual relationship with only one partner is essential. Bond explains that's because females are especially at risk. Our youth ages 13 to 24 actually account for an estimated 26% of new infections in the U.S. since 2010. Bond maintains HIV is not just a young person's disease. It's very shocking because even people 55 and older account for a quarter of all Americans living with HIV in the United States. Thanks for stopping by Ken's Corner, part of the K-Rob Collection. Learn more about our shows by checking out krobcollection.com or the K-Rob Collection Facebook page.